the All Souls Seminars this term, and Sarah is the, is the Senior Research Fellow at Glasgow University, where she directs the Scottish Centre for Crime and Justice Research. Sarah is also uh, the co-editor of the journal Criminology and Criminal Justice, which has got an excellent threesome of, Glasby, of Scottish women uh, currently editing it, so I recommend uh, reading it. It's a really good journal. Um, and Sarah's own work concentrates on prisons and punishment and on visual methods, which is the topic of today's talk. Great. Thank you. Um, thank you. Oh, it goes to sleep, which is not helpful, and then this doesn't. Okay, that's it. Is that going to work with this? No, it's sort of. It does work. Yeah. Okay. Talk among yourselves. Okay. Really. We'll just be. <laughs> it's well, we can talk to these pictures, um, and also just offer a disclaimer and corrective. I, I wouldn't say that I, I, you know, rigorously or consistently use visual methods, but the visual is something that's become increasingly important to me, just the subject of this paper, which is how we represent different problematics, different issues in crime and justice. Okay, now that's broken up. Great. So on the cover here <laughs> is, well, and first of all, thank you very much for inviting me up and, and allowing me to join this, um, this talk series. And there's so many interesting papers that have happened and are about to happen. So privilege to be part of that. These, the cover here shows three different uh, visualizations of Scottish prison, and it gives you a sense of just the uh, diverse ways you can think about a prison, from its insides, from its outsides, in its aggregate sense, in its individual sense, in its future through prison population projections, and its past as a ruin of a past castle keep thus on the northeast coast of Scotland. And I just offered up or juxtaposed those three different images of prison to, to just trigger the issue for today, which is to think generally about the problematics of representation in criminology and crime and justice policy. And I think for those of us working and researching in this field is that we have a particular problem, as many other people in different intensive areas of social policy do, is that our field is littered with such dominating tropes, frames, stereotypes, images of crime and justice that they begin to colonize the imagination. So it's almost impossible to see and therefore to think or know the field any differently than through the imagery that we're given. Um, and so one of the things I want to do is I'm going to be focusing on the topic of prisons, which is my own um, research area, and how it's represented and some of the challenges uh, that have arisen for me around that. But particularly in something like imprisonment, the imagery is dominated by, especially in the United States, by race and uh, poverty. In Scotland, it's less defined by race and ethnicity, but there is a criminalization of poverty that happens throughout the criminal justice system. And so how does a scholar, particularly a scholar who unapologetically is interested in progressive politics of reform, represent something like prison without entrenching and deepening the associations that we draw between race and punishment? That is, how can we challenge something like mass imprisonment without simultaneously triggering and entrenching the associations between race and punishment that exist, without normalizing and naturalizing it so that we begin to expect and become familiar with those associations? 
In other words, how can we see what the problem is, which might be racism or classism, and then unsee it so that we can overcome it and see it, see some different reality that might exist if we didn't have those problems in the criminal justice system. So that broadly is the, the challenge and the problem that I was thinking about in writing this paper. And I thought how, uh, when we think of the visual, we tend to focus on media and popular cultural imagery. But I'd argue that social science is deeply complicit in these problems of representation, of over-associating certain kinds of frameworks and stereotypes, and then even within the, the explanatory modes and methods of social science itself, that we're constrained into particular channels of representation, particular ways of showing. And these couple up and form assemblages with other, other ways of representation. So they combine and reinforce each other into this dominant um, imagery and stereotypical kind of problem. So that people like Judah Schett has written that, how do you visualize something without simply reproducing the problem of that visualization? So that even when you're trying to critique something, you may end up just reinforcing a, a, um, a stereotype. So that is the subject of this paper, and by I introduce um, the notion of seeing in a way that's familiar in visual studies and is just worth um, rehearsing here, which is to say, seeing, by seeing I mean not just the cognitive, uh, perceptive, and physical sensory act of absorbing a visual stimulus, but actually the cognitive process of making sense of that image. So that seeing is not simply an act of perception, it's always an act of making sense. And making sense requires a prior frame, a prior socially influenced, cognitively influenced frame of reference. So this is the challenge for us, is in that seeing is knowing, seeing is making sense, but, making, but knowing is also seeing, that we almost cannot see something that we cannot make sense of. So how might we try to see things that we don't fully understand or which don't fit within the existing frameworks of explanation that we have? In addition, I introduced this concept called seeing as, which is a move I'm hoping to make from getting from a place of a perception that's defined by a pre-existing cognitive framework by expecting or having a familiarity with particular ways of talking about crime and justice issues into a new framework where we might begin to see things slightly differently in a sort of bridged format, is to recognize things in front of us and yet use that as a springboard rather than as a trap to some different modes of representation. And the idea overall, drawing on um, uh, John Burr's famous work book, Fit Ways of Seeing, is the aim then for me is to overcome the veil of, the veil of familiarity and self-evidence that surrounds the experience of seeing and to turn it into a problem for analysis, a mystery to be unraveled. Just to tether this to um, make it less abstract through some empirical example, um, I give you this tale of two prisons, and these images are of the same prison, and the experience, which led to, to a sense of discombobulation, which got me thinking about representational problems, was I went to a prison with a group of Cambridge researchers, Alison Liebling and Bethany Schmidt and colleagues, to go examine a prison which had recently experienced a riot. Um, the prison was a brand new building. And in Scotland, the new prisons are unbelievably beautiful for prisons. They look like colleges or hospitals. They don't look like prisons. 
Um, this is a visiting room, but the housing is always full of natural light and bright colors and soft furniture and whatnot. And yet at the same time, this brand new prison had triggered a riot. So why would there be such disruption in such an amazing place. The, prison, the new prison was built because two older 19th century prisons were closed, horrible, gothic feeling kind of places. Except the decision to build one new prison in place of two, for cost reasons, meant the new prison was sited well out of any population center. So it was a two hour bus ride from the nearest city where most of the prisoners were coming from. And it was on the site of the old prison, one of the old prisons, where there had been a riot in the 1980s because the prisoners said, this prison is too far for our families to visit. Ironically, this prison was built under a new policy in Scottish Prison Service of something called community-facing prisons, of prisons that are made up of uh, the local community's residents. So they, they're not, they're not um, classified by, by familiar um, different lines of segregation. There's remand, long-term, short-term, young people, women, men, everybody's in the prison. The idea is that the most important thing is community access in a prison that's two hours away where there's a riot saying it was too far. So we spent several days talking to people, interviewing, observing, delivering the, um, the survey that Cambridge do. And people just talked about this prison in such different ways. The prisoners talked about the riot, the boredom, the um, absence of regime because they couldn't get any uh, service or program staff to work there because it was such a long commute from anywhere. Um, and the prison managers talked about this amazing building and all the programs that could now be run in it because it had this beautiful centrally organized learning space, it had a great health center and all the rest of it. And by the end of a few days, it began to feel like not only were people talking about different ways they saw the prison, but they were talking about differently and fully formed, completely separate realities of prison. And one group, mainly the prisoners and the frontline staff, were talking about a prison that wasn't that pleasant, that was looking backwards towards a riot that just happened. And the more senior staff and the administrative staff were talking about a future-facing prison, one which is going to achieve all these wonderful, progressive, family-oriented goals of the prison service. So it was this kind of disjuncture between these two prisons, the prisons of the future and this prison of the past, was embodied by this walkway that exists at this prison between the um, administrative offices, you know, glass cube, open plan, office space, and the operational side of the prison where prisoners lived and where programs were run, etc. You have to walk up and down this, this skyway connecting the two sides. And at the different ends of the skyway, there's also inspirational slogans painted on the wall, you know, slightly <laughs> Orwellian, you know, not quite work will make you free, but not far off that. Um, and it just walking back between these two prisons and were, which contained two very different understandings of what the prison was, created this visceral sense of a prison that just did not make sense. A place that was beautiful, well-run, organized, professional, good records, and yet a place that also felt depressing, almost on edge, as if another instance of disorder could take place. It's like, you know, imagining a, um, a riot might break out at, a, at, a, you know, at your local college or something. And so this quote was from a field note of you know, just chatting with each other. And I, and I wrote this down just feeling like it all culminated going to the health center. And at the health center, it's a beautiful health center. It's nicer than my GP's office. Um, was all the staff kind of hanging out, having their coffee break. And they have a, a glass 
cubicle for prisoners to wait. And they literally are then like in a fishbowl. And everyone was laughing and having their morning cup of tea and stuff. And there's these guys sitting there, you know, all in various states of distress because of, you know, one of them had a broken leg. And, and it just felt like this is two different places. And, I, and it just, it, it felt jarring. And I, I wanted to make sense of it and not to write just the report that was meant to be written, which was about how staff and prisoner relations were and what could be done to prevent another riot. Um, so uh, I, I turned to work in criminology, I turned to literary sources, I turned to alternative sources of theory. Um, but I had read Pat Carlin's book, Imaginary Penalities, before, but it hadn't struck me. I went back to it. And I hadn't remembered this vignette she tells, which is really interesting, of going to an Australian women's prison where it was also a brand new facility and it was aimed at supporting women, about recognizing <laughs> complex needs and uh, special um, programs, non-punitive approaches that would benefit women. So this prison was built with all these programs to be run for women, attached to through care services for women leaving the prison so they'd be sort of supported in their community um, and connect, reconnect to their families. So she went to this prison and actually she, she found out there were no prisoners who could serve, that this prisoner could serve, that the women it was designed for just didn't exist and weren't getting sent to the prison. So she wrote about it as having imaginary prisoners, imaginary programs, and an imaginary community which was gonna receive these women and bring them back up to um, law-abiding citizenship status. It was interesting what Pat Carlin did in discussing this was not just to say this was a stupid idea, someone built a prison that was unneeded, and that policy wasn't working, and not thinking about it instrumentally, she, she took it as a reality itself, that the imaginary prison was itself a durable reality, in which she calls it an as-if reality, in which the rhetoric of this uh, future prison was becoming the reality. In that sense, it was becoming a material reality because the staff in that prison were getting performance managed for how many referrals and supports they were offering the women, the women prisoners who weren't there. So this imaginary prison had material consequences on the ground, and so you know, I felt like it was a very parallel experience of having to deal with two prisons in the same place. That connects to a novel written by China Mievel. I don't know if you guys are fans of science fiction or not, but he's written a lot about London. But he's written a book called The City and the City. And in the novel, he writes about two cities that exist in the exact same Euclidean space. And there is a um, law against noticing other aspects of the other city that you're living in. So there's two cities which can be visualized, but it's illegal to notice the other city in your city. And there's a whole police force that, uh, that polices breaches of seeing. And this is what I, I became to me quite a useful frame for thinking about how we, our particular strategies of representation, our particular uh, modes of social science methodology, prevent us, and in some sense are enforcing us from seeing different realities in the same place. Meeville is writing about London and the increasing segregation in that city between rich and poor, and how you could live two completely different lives in one place. But I found it quite productive for thinking about um, this problem. So finally, looking for some, some theoretical tools and analytical frames to address this, to try to capture a different way of representing the prison. So turn to science and technology studies, particularly the work of Anne-Marie Mole, and that is an image from her book, The Body Multiple, in which she's studying um, 
hardened arteries, but she talks to patients, to doctors, to hospital managers, and so on, and found and described in a similar way how each of them were describing completely different realities of a patient, a family member, an insurance unit, and so forth, and develops that idea to argue for the body multiple, the idea that the body has multiple realities in the same space. I also pulled in notions of contradiction, that if we're allowing multiple realities to exist at the same time, then those necessarily won't always be coherent or consistent with each other. And so I wanted to, to see how contradiction might be one way that would be productive for us to um, develop representational practices. And finally, I drew on John Law and Vicki Singleton's work, um, again, on, um, in, the mental, in, the, in the medical field on alcoholic liver disease, where they, they develop a notion concept of the fire object, which is where, there, where every object both has simultaneous presences and absences. And to me, that was a really useful way of thinking about how the object of the prison we were at reflected quite a lot of absences in absence headquarters, which was deciding that a prison not near a community would be a community-facing prison. So it was living this illogical policy that somehow seemed rational very far away in space and time. Um, and with all this, thinking about contradiction, multiplicity, and absence, it leads to, to think of some existing tools that are used in criminology of concepts like assemblage from Deleuze, and where where we get the sense that there's um, arrangements of different kinds of uh, organizational elements that, that hang together but don't necessarily cohere into a systematic picture or grand narrative. So just to hone in on these notions of multiplicity, contradiction, and absence. Um, so multiplicity, as I've mentioned, is a way of capturing the simultaneous description of completely formed realities for people who have occupied different standpoints in the same space. And it adopts an ethnographic form of description in order to capture this, which, which Mole calls a praxeographic method, um, which is to say that the, a praxeographic orientation means that the techniques that make things visible audible, tangible, knowable, are themselves part of ena enacting them as real. And that message comes back then to the criminologist, to the researcher, and that the tools we use to describe, to depict, to represent our objects of study are also participating at, at, in enacting them as um, realities. Uh, secondly, the notion of contradiction. Um, that we could have such a, dis a depressing and isolated institution alongside a progressive uh, one focused on social and family integration and forward thinking was difficult. And going against the tendency and the pressure we feel in social science to come up with coherent singular narratives, a notion of contradiction means that we can describe both of those things and leave them there without trying to reconcile or collapse one description over another as one as more as a more important, more relevant, more salient reality. Um, and by doing that, I'd argue that it makes it possible to see specific harms, dynamics, and implications of things like penal institutions in a way that's impossible to do if you collapse or subordinate different kinds of descriptions into each other. Uh, let's see, I think. 
And I pull out a quote to sort of illustrate this notion, or to, to, to argue for the justification of thinking about contradiction as the language is productive rather than something which should be bracketed in our forms of research. What this is, is this is from an article by Elaine Genders about breaches in a private prison. And it's a long list of things that have gone wrong. And it goes from 211 incidents of prisoner self-harm right down the list to eight failures to report on performance measures. And what I love about this is the collapsing of a prison that is a physical space of abuse with a, um, with a performance management prison, which is an example of contractual governance, so that the actual physical violence perpetrated against inmates becomes juxtaposed and flattened alongside failure to make a contractual report. And so what that does is that is affiliated with a certain amount of fines for the private provider, um, and if the private provider fixes those, then everything's fine. But what it leaves in the dark is the fact that there is a really important difference between bullets and bullet points, that there is a physical violence, there's a black mark on a contractor, but there's a black eye for a prisoner, which has implications for understanding the violence of that space, which may or may not be captured in performance measures. Um, and so even this list itself is the enactment, I'd argue, of a particular penal reality, which is the penal reality of um, the contractual governance prison. That this is the prison which becomes the ground by which we uh, form political movements of resistance. That by attacking a prison, we begin to lump together these things and lose sight of its actual direct brutalities and how those are caused. And so that managerialism itself remains slightly out of focus um, in our ability to attack it, and we become, we become absorbed into the managerialist paradigm of, uh, of using, of relying on the same numbers and speaking the language of these numbers and this discourse in order to challenge and critique it. So where I come from, in Scotland, where the prisons, for the most part, physically do not look that brutal, um, it can be hard to find a space of critique to say, but in our prisons, two people committed suicide last month, and two young people committed suicide in our prisons the month before that. You know, that becomes quite a small thing in the midst of many other policies, programs, performance measures the prison is doing very well on. Just going back to... And then absence was just to refer to this idea that any object we're depicting or representing always consists of a series of present and absent forces, spatially and temporally. And so this is just to emphasize the point I made before, that this prison that we were looking at was a prison that existed in a very tiny village, not near anything, that was at the same time a prison that was visualized and constructed in the minds of managers at headquarters in Edinburgh as the kind of prison which would be the model of the future existence. <coughs> so, from here, um, that picture is a um, image of another new prison that was built in Scotland, and it's a picture of the machine room. And it was the, it was part, uh, one image taken as part of an artist-in-residency project we had at our center, 
called Working Spaces, Punishing Spaces, where the artist was looking at the ways that criminological research was participating in or reproducing some of the um, practices of punishment you're looking at. And what she did is she took a lot of different pictures of prisons with no bodies in it at all. And what I loved about this image was the way that it um, draws attention to the prison literally as a machine, a prison as a very large building that is processing water, waste, and electricity, which uh, to me opened up an opportunity to think about it not just as a container for bodies that we can only understand through the bodies that are in it, but also part of a community, part of a, um, of a neighborhood that is using resources, that is a source of employment or not employment, a source of resentment, as this new pr these new prisons in Scotland are, because they tend to have better facilities than the local communities that surround them. Um, and so I was thinking, this is the kind of imagery that I'm interested in, is the banal, mundane spaces of punishment, which get at some of these um, issues of invisibility, neglect, and contradiction in prison. So, <clears throat> um, so making the move then from seeing to seeing as, from thinking about seeing as uh, constrained by particular practices and tropes to seeing as, is how do we go about representing the prison differently? Is it simply just taking pictures of the prison that are less familiar more than all? Um, here I, I do heavily draw on the work of John's Law and Yuri in their article, Enacting the Social, in which they talk about the methodologies of social science and the methodologies we still use, which were created in the 19th century, and have a particular understanding of the world and a particular understanding of Euclidean space. And they argue that those methods and techniques of recording the world were also based on an ideological understanding of the world as a particular sort of coherent reality, both socially and physically. And that those techniques are no longer as productive or valuable in an age that we live in with uh, various kinds of social disruption and global engagement. And so they argue, and I'm quoting, that if social investigation makes the worlds, then it can, in some measure, think about the worlds it wants to help make. And here I wanted to raise the possibility that there is a breakdown in social sciences and that can be um, effected through representational practices between descriptive and normative positions, between our duty as social scientists to objectively record and uh, present the world, as well as citizens and activists to use that to have some part in changing the world. And that is where I introduce the notion of seeing as, not as a direct form of activism, but as an imaginative step, as a step of saying that by describing the world, we're taking a stand in it, and that often our descriptions <coughs> tend to take a stand that's in alliance with very traditional, conventional, and stereotyped understandings of criminal justice institutions and crime justice problems. And here, the work of Ruth Levitas, the utopian sociologist, is really helpful, who looks at utopia as a method, and in her work, reconstituting the social, writes that the utopian method means not that we are aiming for some particular image of reform or some goal on the horizon, but that we are, have the ability as sociologists to imagine that that is part of the sociological duty, 
uh, in contrast to something like Weber in Science of Vocation, where there's a sharp distinction between the problem of is and the problem of ought. And then, finally, I, I think I also draw on some of the work of Richard Wordy, who's, um, who's a, a deceased American pragmatist philosopher, who also writes about um, the work of emancipation and the work of liberation. And Rorty says that one of the key ways that we get to a different way of being is to imagine it and to have some way of talking about it, to have some language of talking about it. And so he writes that the challenge is to work between an entrenched vocabulary, which has become a nuisance, and a half-formed new vocabulary, which vaguely promises great things. So the challenge that, I, that faces me as someone who's interested in punishment and prison practices is to find ways of depicting something that is extremely familiar, but in ways that slightly are oblique and offer new grounds for understanding both the potential for a world in which prisons might eventually become ruins, and which we can also continue to have debates about the problems that prisons present in terms of containing disproportionate numbers of uh, social, social eth ethnically and racially marginalized people. Um, so, so yeah, this, this is just the ruins of an old castle, which is just down the road from the new prison that they have built. Um, and so my own work, what that's led me to do, is to focus more on bureaucratic spaces and objects of punishment, and to understand, you know, building on the, on the classic work of people like Robert Cover, who wrote Violence in the Word, about the violence of the judge, and the word of the judge is equivalent to the violence that happens to the person in prison, is to understand these bureaucratic sites and spaces as themselves potentially um, violent and dangerous, and also to reconstruct the, the prison as something which is, um, that holds bodies that we can only know through telling the stories of the bodies, into trying to uh, center the prison itself which is something I'm also writing on uh, separately. I'm also trying to, I'm beginning to explore thinking about, um, about how narrative, how the structure of narrative works in criminology, which is an entirely different project, which I'm happy to talk about, but uh, we'll leave it for now. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's where I'm, I'm leaving the paper. This is the last slide. This is the the paper appears in um, the International Handbook of Visual Criminology. Um, I'm happy to share a copy of it with anybody, but I'll leave it there. The paper there. So, thank you very much. <laughs>